Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael Rielvas is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He makes an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians, and who does not need that? Everybody needs that. Michael has your best interest at heart when it comes to disability insurance. We know he'd be happy to help you address your needs. You can find Michael at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance or contact him at Greetings. Uh, This is Jeff Siegel from the Medical Liability Minute, the podcast where we talk for more than one minute. Our co-host today is Mike Sakopoulos, our general counsel. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Thank you. And today I am jazzed. Um, Here's why I'm jazzed. I read a book recently. It was called License to Practice, The Supreme Court Defines the American Medical Profession. And it's a history of how medical boards came into being and how the uh, medical profession um, came to be licensed. Now, I know what everybody's thinking. That doesn't sound like a really interesting book, but I'm going to tell you 180 degrees opposite. It was excellent. I read it over the Christmas uh, holidays. It was spectacular. The author of the book is Professor James Moore, and he's with us today. And I'm going to just give you his general background and then talk about um, the book and what was interesting about it. And then we're going to dive right in. And if if everybody listening today does not learn 10 new facts that you did not know previously, if you knew all this stuff before, I'm open to that idea of giving you a free year of medical justice membership. Now, we'll have to see and we'll need to count the 10. Anyway, Professor uh, James Moore is our guest. He's the author of the book, License to Practice, The Supreme Court Defines the American Medical Profession. Prior to his retirement in 2018, he was a College of Arts and Sciences Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Oregon. Uh, In addition to the book we will be discussing today, uh, Professor Moore has already also written several others related to the social history of medicine in the U.S., including Abortion in America, the Origins and Evolution of National Policy from 1800 to 1900. That goes back quite a way. Doctors and the Law, Medical Jurisprudence in the 19th Century America, and then Plague and Fire, Battling Black Death and the 1900 Burning of Honolulu's Chinatown, which won the Oregon Book Award. He's had numerous articles that have been uh, placed in a um, a number of historical journals as well as the Journal of American Medical Association. 
I could go on his um, his resume, read several pages long, but let me cut that short and welcome him to the podcast today. Welcome, Professor Moore. Ah, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, the thing that I really enjoyed about the book, it answers a question is how did American doctors come to be licensed on terms we now take for granted? And what what's fascinating to me is that I just assume that we had licensing that went back forever, but there is an origin story uh, to this. And let me just do the brief summary of the book and then We'll use that as a springboard to our conversation. So in your book, which candidly was one of the better books I've read, um, I would say over the past five years, License to Practice begins with an 1891 shooting in Wheeling, West Virginia that left one doctor dead and another on trial for his life. These two doctors were formerly close friends, but they had fallen out over an issue related to uh, medical licensing. And the murder was a sorry personal consequence of the far larger and historically significant battle among West Virginia's uh, physicians over the future of their uh, profession. So through most of the 19th century, apparently anybody could call themselves a doctor and practice medicine, however they liked. Uh, but in 1889, U.S. Supreme Court case, Dent versus West Virginia, effectively transformed medical practice from an unregulated occupation to a legally recognized uh, profession. So, I mean, this is the backdrop to the story. And again, I I start with the notion that we just assume that medicine was licensed um, into the distant past, um, but that's not the case. Yet your book opens with one doctor murdering another, and I think that's always going to get someone's attention. So who are the protagonists in this murder and how are they related to this broader story of medical licensing? Well, the two were, uh, as you pointed out, almost father and son in their relationship. The, the younger of the, of the two people, the one who did the shooting, uh, actually had named his son after the man he murdered. Uh, but they had fallen out uh, as both had been members of the West Virginia uh, Board of Medical Examiners. West Virginia Board of Health is what it was called at the time, uh, and they fell out over the the newly imposed requirements for medical licensing. Uh, specifically, the younger man was accused of not having the proper kind of degree that the older man and his colleagues uh, required of anybody trying to get a license in the state after the 1889 Supreme Court decision. Uh, and they were both, uh, particularly the man murdered, were they were they were both very hot-tempered people, uh, and when they met on the street, they would uh, engage in loud arguments with each other, swearing at each other, and um, it was it was a as I point out a kind of micro vignette of the vicious battles that went on within the medical world over licensing. And I think you're absolutely right that the average American cannot imagine a world in which the country wouldn't license physicians. Of all the things that are out there, of all the occupations, professions, and so forth, if, there, if we're licensing hairdressers, surely we would be licensing doctors. But that was not the case in the United States. Um, and and I'm guessing time. hairdressers had their own origin story for when they <laughs> became a licensed, I call it a profession, 
Um, I'm sure at some point in the past, they probably did not need to be licensed. And Certainly not, yes. The thing so. that people will, uh, will recognize, though, is that even with a murder, and a murder would be less likely to take place in 2021, that medical politics is still rather contentious today. There are still a number of issues where people fight tooth and nail. And your the point of your book is that this this really was a vicious fight that was fought in the 1800s for a variety of variety of reasons. One of which was to um, to establish credentials uh, for one group as opposed to another, and also for economic reasons to keep out the the others, if you will, to create an economic uh, guild. But why don't we start by talking about what did healthcare look like? in the United States in the late 1700s and 1800s. I mean, it's, people today just assume that everybody was practicing kind of the same type of medicine. They couldn't do very much and mostly were just holding people's hands and providing comfort care while they became sick and or died. But that was not the case. Medicine was a rather eclectic profession and there were multiple schools of thoughts uh, in the 1700s and 1800s, including some that had no school of thought whatsoever. That's absolutely right. Um, medicine could best be uh, characterized as a wide open occupation as distinguished from a legal profession. That is, there was no official recognition of people who wanted to uh, get paid as a doctor. Uh, you could do whatever you wanted to uh, with your patients. if patients even is the right word. If you could get people to pay you to do to them whatever you thought was best, then you could do that. You could even put doctor in front of your name. There was no requirement that you actually held the degree. You could just call yourself doctor. And the applications of medicine ranged from uh, the widow down the street who had a bunch of recipes that had come down from the Middle Ages um, through various, as you say, medical sects, uh, or semi-organized and organized groups uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, what you might call the more educated end of the spectrum, were physician groups that actually had medical schools and taught particular approaches to medicine. One of the difficulties was that these schools were teaching different approaches, however, uh, and as you rightly point out, none of them was very good. Uh, the uh, the people who eventually organized the American Medical Association and then come out on top of this sort of tumultuous battle over how we're going to treat Americans in terms of health, uh, that group felt it was the, the lineal uh, descendants of a long line of educated medicine. Uh, homeopaths, who were actually just as educated, perhaps better educated than most of the AMA types, uh, had their own approach. Uh, you mentioned eclectic. Uh, there's both ecle eclectic medicine is a good phrase for the exactly what's going on. But there was yeah, also, I was using it. I was using it as an yeah. adjective as opposed right. to a, the the named group of people that had their own school of thought. Exactly, they were the eclectics with a capital E, uh, and they uh, they were willing to try anything that that seemed to work or that they'd heard might work, uh, with the exception of any mineral poisons that the AMA type used, since the uh, what passed for educated medicine 
still clung to the basic notion that had come out of Greece and Rome that the balance within your body was what kept you healthy. And so if you if you had something wrong with you, their general approach was to sort of blow you out with purgatives uh, as, as violent as possible. Uh, and much like starting the, the restart button on a modern computer, you, you got, rid, got rid of all that stuff and then you uh, tried to come back to balance that, that might work. Uh, so but, you but, in see, sense, it, but in a sense, it's probably more than just pressing reboot. It's, it's almost um, analogous to picking up the computer and smashing it several times <laughs> and hoping yeah. that it will reboot properly. Sometimes that yeah. works, actually, but typically it does not. <laughs> And these doctors, actually, to the extent they competed in the marketplace, a lot of them competed on the strength of their secret purgatives. You know, uh, whatever else the patient got out of these uh, these therapeutics, they knew the doctor had done something pretty dramatic because uh, <laughs> the effect was immediate. So let's let's look at the names of some of these groups. I have them written down here. We've got regulars versus non-regulars, and then Thompsonians botanics, hydropaths, homeopaths, and eclectics. Can you, and ultimately the regulars were the ones who won the battle, I think, long-term. But just give um, those listening a quick understanding of how they were distinguished from one another, if there were substantive ways to distinguish them. It, it may be that they were just similar schools of thought with different people doing it and they clung together or there truly were differences in how they treated patients oh the latter is the case and and they were all very proud of their particular way of healing and uh, very suspicious and hostile toward alternative forms of healing which is one of the things that generates the kind of animosity that we saw in micro form with the murder uh, I can take take you through some of these. Uh, let me do it uh, more or less in the way they evolved in the United States. Um, yep. Originally, um, physicians, to the extent they were recognized at all, were you know, thought of themselves in the old British tradition of uh, the, of learned medicine. They studied the Greeks uh, and the Romans. They clung to what was called the humoral theory, that is the balanced theory. Um, they continued with the purgatives and so forth, which had been given way back at the time of uh, the Greeks and Romans. Uh, they were challenged in the early 19th century by the Thompsonians. Uh, Thompson was a Vermont farmer who decided that uh, really all you needed was uh, the, the uh, vegetal product called uh, lobelia, the plant lobelia, boiled that down into a tea or a medicinal uh, preparation. You took that and it made you perspire. You, you, could, you could help that by sitting in what we might now call something like a proto-sauna. And mm. the whole, only thing you needed to do to get over any ailment was to perspire. Uh, and these people became very popular. They were sort of a populist medicine. Uh, you, you, for a certain amount of money, you could buy this guy's book, Thompson's book, and become a Thompsonian doctor yourself. Uh, they sent... Uh, uh, wheelbarrow loads of petitions to state legislatures urging the state legislature to ban all other kinds of medicine and make them the official medicine of the state. Uh, no state did that because uh, they couldn't prove they were any better than anybody else. But you get some idea. These are not trivial 
uh, operations. And then the botanics picked that up a little bit, and this is now capital B, botanics. They start their own medical schools, uh, and they teach uh, that you can use all kinds of botanicals, not just lobelia, to treat lots of different types of things. Uh, they actually develop pretty sophisticated botany. Uh, they, if, if you take doctors as uh, students of botany, a lot of them were, were pretty serious sort of pseudoscientists uh, in that field. I mean, many of our uh, early pharmaceuticals did come from plants or tree barks, uh, for example. Is that something that they just put into their encyclopedia of action? as an extension of the Tom, because it seems like the Thompsonians were limited to one root. So one root would have to treat everything. Right, and the botanics expand that concept. And they they look into all kinds of medicinals that were used by the indigenous people of North America and South America. Uh, they they try all kinds of, of uh, different herbal recipes. Uh, about the same time, uh, homeopathy is introduced from Europe uh, and homeopathy uh, their great motto was like cures like and so if you have a fever the way to cure that would be to give the patient a little bit of something that would otherwise induce fever if the patient were well so that maybe cayenne pepper in small amounts would be good uh, and they and they give these medicinals in such tiny amounts that by modern standards they're administering no medicine at all yeah it's uh, interesting um historically homeopaths looked like their well their outcomes were good because they were being compared to those who gave such horrific remedies such as the cathartics or using of heavy metals so in a sense it was almost as good as placebo placebo being better than you know, a patient being given heavy metals. And early on, those who had access to the the uh, heavy metal or cathartic treatment were wealthier. And so those, those are the people who did more poorly uh, over time. It made the homeopaths look good. And my understanding is that the toxins that they were given or, or whatever molecules they were given, they were based on dilutions to your point, there wasn't even any of that original substance available after all those dilutions occurred, which leads to the modern day joke. Um, did you hear about the homeopathic patient who uh, missed his uh, dose, who forgot to take his medicine and overdosed? <laughs> yeah. My, I know my that favorite. I, yeah, who's listening to this is probably gonna send me a nasty note, but it's- <laughs> My favorite story about the 19th century homeopaths was, someone once calculated on the basis of, of one of their dilution formulae uh, what percentage it would be and they calculated that it, it would be roughly a basketball inside a globe whose circumference was the track of the earth around the sun <laughs> pretty tiny so, number yes yeah but that, to give the homeopaths their due, they were actually very well educated. Their their medical schools were more sophisticated probably than the ones we now associate with what became the AMA schools. Yeah. Um, they took it very seriously. Uh, they eventually broke out among themselves, uh, some going almost to spiritualism, others moving toward what we would call scientific medicine. 
but they too were, were very popular and eventually gained uh, popularity with the wealthy and influential classes. So that uh, when Michigan, for example, was uh, was in the 1860s and 70s, thinking about licensing, uh, it it would have, it would almost certainly have gone that licensing would have been uh, along the basis of homeopathy, and the University of Michigan Medical School uh, would taught homeopathy uh, rather than so-called regular medicine. Anyway, let me continue then. Uh, hydro the hydropath hydropathy the so-called water cure system, uh, their theory was all you need is water. Uh, it cleans you out. You can administer water internally or externally, and you can administer water in, with heat or cold. So they would wrap, wrap people with a fever. They would wrap them in cold sheets. Uh, they used warm water baths. They used all sorts of infusions. Uh, they became extremely popular in in the in the 1850s. Uh, the Water Cure Journal, which was their popular magazine, was the largest selling magazine in the United States. So uh, these are you know these are not trivial undertakings. Well, Just I'm thinking an, of the movie Road to Wellville about uh, Kellogg and the I guess wellness wellness spa that they created where people would come from all over the country to spend time hydrotherapy being one of the one of the main treatments above and beyond diet that they that they would advocate is, is that I mean, Absolutely. is that hydrotherapy that we're talking about you're, yeah you're right on the beam they uh, kellogg himself combined hydropathy with a sort of uh, botanical diet uh, system uh, he, he was sort of uh, hydropathy on steroids. Uh, but it, as an aside, the, the main residue of that medical approach was probably the uh, beginning of modern vacations. Uh, it, was, it was particularly popular among women. And yeah. you can understand why. If you're a miserable farm wife on some scratching farm anywhere, uh, your daily routine is pretty miserable. And if treatment for you consists of going to spend two weeks bathing in a warm bath and uh, being treated by somebody else, you know, that's not a bad way to go. So you can understand why uh, why this becomes popular with so many people, and particularly with women. Well, um, to follow up on that, um, the benefit of hydropathy seemed to continue uh, into the 20th century as related to treatment of the 1918 Spanish flu, the great pandemic 100 years ago, I was reading an old article which described the benefit of hydrotherapy, you know, inducing fever, if you will, in the um, young military patients that came back or, or that developed the deadly influenza, that their recovery rate was higher than those who were just treated as a control group. And apparently, 100 years later, the evidence is that such heat, which induces fever, if you will, um, can increase the number of natural killer cells to promote an immune response. It may even be relevant to, uh, uh, to an alternative treatment for COVID, among other things. So it's, it's interesting that some of the observations from many years ago uh, actually did pass the um, 
uh, the test and remain relevant uh, decades, if not centuries later. To your point, Jeff, um, even now the national medical, national health systems of most European countries still recognize spa treatment as something they pay for. Uh, we don't hear, no insurance companies cover that kind of thing in the United States, but uh, it is still regarded as a legitimate uh, medical therapy by the national health systems of many European countries. Well, we can dream. That would be a nice addition <laughs> to, uh, to, a, to an executive policy. Yeah. Anyway, just going? to continue on with the rough outline here, and then I'll bring it to an end, but uh, the the final group that, that's worth mentioning in this in this uh, discussion are the so-called regulars, who are a majority of all practitioners in the United States. Now, they don't all practice the same medicine, but they all claim to be allied with the long-term medical tradition that goes back to the Greeks and Romans, and they claim to value uh, actual degree in from a medical school, which is itself a whole other subject because most of these schools had very little to teach uh, and they they uh, were mostly for-profit organizations by local doctors uh, who would give out degree they were paid you know by the course uh, if you want to become uh, if you want to get some legitimacy rather than just simply put a doctor in front of your name and you wanted some degree you could uh, take courses from the local doctors on a fee basis. Uh, the doctors made money. Uh, you got your degree, and off you went. I mean, were, were they diploma, were they diploma mills? Um, I mean, yeah, were, many of them were. Meaning many that if them. you the the sole determinant was whether you paid and showed up. If you did those two bare bones basic things, you got the document you were looking for and can set up shop. Or Many of them were. Many of them were. Yeah. There's no question about it. And that, that becomes a huge issue at the end of the 19th century with the AMA. But but there's no question that that's the case. And one of the offs, offshoots of this kind of a world in which anybody can practice any kind of medicine uh, on any basis, with or without any educational background, is that medicine was a crowded field. It was not considered a prestigious profession with the there were a few exceptions you know, very wealthy people in in wealthy cities but the vast majority of american physicians were were poor they practiced medicine part-time not full-time because there was so little money in it uh if if you went to your parents and said you know i i i want to become a doctor they would groan and say, my God, can't you do anything else? There are a lot of good trades out there. You know, you, you can make a, and there are lots of quotes to this effect, uh, that it was hard to make a living. Uh, we, they were, in a sense, over-doctored, but none of the doctors could do much for patients. It was a wide open world that modern Americans can hardly, uh, hardly imagine. So one question I have is, before it became a profession similar to law, or I guess at the time the military, um, if if you as a doctor said you were going to do something for a patient, was the understanding that you needed to deliver an outcome to get paid, or you could just do the work and get paid? Because it seemed like that was one of the points in the book and one of the reasons for becoming a bona fide licensed profession is that you could be paid for 
the labor regardless of the outcome. Whereas um, the before picture was that if you were going to um, embark on some type of treatment and the patient expected a particular outcome, you weren't entitled to your fee unless you delivered that outcome. That's an excellent question, but there's no um, single answer to it, I'm afraid. Um, since everything was so wide open, um, patients could refuse to pay. Doctors could haul them into court to try to get them to pay, uh, which happened a lot. But they didn't, in the end, they usually did not have to pay uh, if they thought the doctor had done a poor job. Uh, the, one of the hallmarks of a profession is that you are judged not on the outcome, but on how well you tried. Mm -hmm. And and that's one of the things that they that physicians by the end of the 19th century wanted to achieve in the form of, of public licensing. It would, it would give them that that uh, advantage. But until that becomes the case, uh, American judges frequently treated medicine as a, as a contract operation, at least an implied contract between a patient and, and, and whoever was doing the treatment, uh, and, and dealt with them in court that way, just as they would with a plumber or a carpenter. You know, the carpenter builds you a little bridge, the bridge falls down, the carpenter is, is, is responsible for that, has to come back and fix it. You don't have to pay the carpenter until he gets it right. Uh, that would be a contract situation. And medicine was, in some jurisdictions, treated that way, in others, not. Uh, so there's, I'm afraid there's no clear answer. It was, like so much of 19th century medicine, a really muddled picture. It's interesting. It's almost as if you're in some jurisdictions that it was expected you would give them a guarantee or warranty to get paid but there was so little they could guarantee and warrant exactly <laughs> it's almost like the worst of all worlds right i mean for that reason a lot of the doctors out there scratching for a living and sort of trying to almost cut each other's throats for the limited market share uh, a lot of them actually made most of their money by compounding and selling their own medicinals. That is, I'm going to prescribe this for you, uh, and I'm going to make it. I mean, you have to pay me for the medicinal, whether you pay me for the the, the therapeutic uh, actions I'm going to take otherwise, or for the diagnosis is up to you. But but you are going to have to pay me for this medicine. It's interesting. That would be the beginning of little pharma before big pharma. Yes. <laughs> And so the question, I mean, we've all heard of snake oil salesmen. Is is that relevant to the conversation here? Were there snake oil salesmen in the 1800s? Oh, absolutely. They were of every conceivable sort. Uh, you know, some claimed to have the, you know, the secret of the Aztecs. Uh, lots of so-called Indian doctors uh, crisscrossed the United States. A lot of people considered that, or at least advertised themselves as uh, specialists in certain things. Uh, ocular, oculists, for example, were a, uh, a well-known itinerant group who would go around claiming to treat eye ailments. Uh, they, every, if, you, if you can imagine uh, any conceivably medical-related group, it was there. You don't have to make it up. It was there. And they had their own shows and um, musical events to try to draw a crowd. And then they would 
bring out uh, phony witnesses to the to the uh, to the great uh, cure that they had. Uh, a lot of these witnesses were horses, for example. I gave this horse such as again, and it's now young and, and vigorous. Um, and animal witnesses were particularly effective because you can't cross-examine them. Uh, no, they don't talk back except for they Mr. were very popular with the uh, <laughs> snake oil people. Yeah, if you could certainly get a horse to talk, I would probably take whatever they <laughs> right. gave the horse. Right. It would be very compelling evidence. But I think your point is that it just was unregulated. There were no regulations related to the pharmaceuticals. There were no regulations related to the claims that doctors uh, could make or the types of treatments they they could implement. Absolutely, Jeff. That's a, that's, that's a lovely summary. That's exactly the point. And, and the reason, you know, we, we have to give all these examples is it really is hard, I think, for modern Americans to believe that was the case, that that's the way medicine was dealt with in the 19th century. It was a, a dirty, low-lying occupation, not a profession. And it, it, the, the variations within it were almost infinite. And it seems like some of the earliest regulations weren't so much for who could be a physician. They were focused on abortion. That, that's something that I read in the book. Um, I can't recall the specifics. Maybe you can go into it. But, it, but to the extent there was a regulation, it was related to very specific domains, in particular abortion. Can you talk? Can you touch on that? Yeah, I can. Um, some of the early regular physicians uh, saw in the abortion trade, which was also legal, wide open, widely widely administered throughout the country, uh, they saw in that trade a, a target they could go after as a way of trying to get some of the competitors out of the field. Uh, and so they go into state legislatures and try to get anti-abortion laws passed, which becomes the origin of modern anti-abortion laws. Uh, and a number of these states refuse to ban abortion per se, but they are willing to ban what appear to be uh, demonstrably dangerous chemicals, uh, many of which were used for more efficient purposes. Before we end... Don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situations. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at drpodcastnetwork.com slash MRinsurance. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, 
write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epperson Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.